Welcome to Insights Now, a series of conversations designed to shine a light of clarity on the complex world of investing. My name is Stephanie Aliaga, and I'm a market analyst on the Global Market Insights Strategy Team at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. 2022 has brought no shortage of issues that investors have to grapple with, one of them being the upcoming midterm elections and what changes in policy, or lack thereof, may come of it. At a time where recession fears are high, is there any hope for more fiscal stimulus from a potentially divided government? And given all the spending that's already been done, is the government going to run into issues on making debt payments now that interest rates have risen? This country has also become extremely politically divided. And this doesn't only impact the way people vote, but also the way they feel about the economy. Americans as a whole seem to feel pretty pessimistic right now. The preliminary reading for consumer sentiment in May fell to its lowest level in nearly 10 years. But when you look under the hood, people who identify as Democrat still feel a whole lot better about the economy than people who identify as Republican. In fact, those people who identify as Republican feel worse about the economy today than they did during the great financial crisis. And given these large divisions in sentiment, it is really important to not let how you feel about politics impact how you feel about investing. So today, for a conversation on politics and policy ahead of the midterms later this year, we've invited Mira Pandit, global market strategist at J.P. Morgan Asset Management, to talk about the political landscape. And of course, David Kelly, who usually hosts this podcast, to talk about the fiscal outlook. So Mira and David, welcome back to Insights Now. Very glad to be here. Thanks for having me again. David, perhaps let's start with the economy. Real GDP growth in the first quarter of 2022 was negative, and part of that was due to the lack of government spending. Now that the pandemic has winded down and the administration is even facing heat for having stoked inflation, fiscal stimulus is expected to be pretty minimal this year. How will this further impact economic growth? Well, I go go further than that. It's not just a lack of fiscal stimulus. It's actual real fiscal drag. Uh, as we estimated last fiscal year, and remember the fiscal year goes from uh, October 1 of the previous year to September 30th of the current year. Well, in fiscal 2021, the US budget deficit came in at $2.8 trillion. And when you think about it, what's a budget deficit? A budget deficit is the money the government puts into the economy in the form of spending, less what it takes out in taxes. So it's basically stimulus. And stimulus in 2021 was $2.8 trillion. We estimated this point that stimulus in or fiscal 2022 uh, will actually be about $830 billion, so almost $2 trillion lower. That is, even in percentage terms, the biggest fiscal drag, the bi- biggest drop in government stimulus to the economy that we've seen since the end of World War II. So I, I think it is really, it's already slowing parts of economic growth. And I think it will continue to drag on economic growth throughout the rest of this year and next year. So less fiscal stimulus is a drag to economic growth, but on the other hand, it improves our federal finances because we're spending less. How are our federal finances looking right now? Well, actually, surprisingly good. I I mean, it is true that we've accumulated a lot of debt, and that is going to take a long time to get rid of. But the debt to GDP ratio, I think it's always important to look at debt relative to the size of the economy. So the debt to GDP ratio went from uh, about 77% of GDP before the pandemic, all the way up to 100% of GDP by the end of last fiscal year. But it's now coming down because the the deficit is the amount that you add to the debt every year. And the deficit this year, this fiscal year, we think will only come in at about 3.4% of GDP. So the debt, and since the debt's about 100% of GDP, debt grows by about 3.4%. The thing is GDP, nominal GDP, 
which is both inflation plus real GDP, is growing by more than 3.4%. So actually, the debt to GDP ratio is coming down. And we think it'll come down again next year. So what we know is, from looking at the last few years, that the, that the glo- global capital markets are willing to supply the U.S. government with enough money to run the show, even when the debt-to-GDP ratio is at 100%. If the debt-to-GDP ratio is falling, it's very likely that, that global capital markets will continue to be willing to uh, buy treasury bonds at, at this pace. So we have seen remarkable improvement. We're still not at a surplus, and it would be nice to get to a budget surplus, but we've seen remarkable improvement in the federal finances. And I think the threat of a fiscal crisis, which a lot of people worry about, that, that threat of a fiscal crisis, I think, has really diminished um, in the last year. But although we're spending less, and so the debt-to-GDP ratio has fallen, like you mentioned, um, at least in prior years when we had all this fiscal spending, interest rates were low. So the cost to service that debt was low. Now the 10-year Treasury yield has risen from 1.5% at the start of the year to now hovering around 3%. Is fiscal debt still sustainable at these rates? I think it is sustainable in, to the extent that I don't think it's going to cause a crisis. So when when these higher Treasury rates fully feed in, I mean, first of all, remember that the average maturity of US government debt runs to about six years, okay? So... Ten-year uh, treasuries are, you know, have a slightly la- higher maturity than than the debt overall. So the average interest rate the government pays is probably a little bit uh, would even in a steady state probably be less than the ten-year treasury yield. But even so, you know, that's, it's backed up. So the interest cost eventually, if if long-term rates stayed where they are, might be two and a half to. 2.75% as the average interest cost paid by the US federal government. And with debt, again, equal to about 100% of GDP, that means about two and a half to two and three quarters percent of GDP per year, just financing the federal debt. That is an increase, a significant increase from what we've seen um, in recent years. But again, remember what I said about the maturity of the debt being six years, the, uh, about half the federal debt is of more than three years in maturity. So even though rates have gone up a lot since the start of the year, you know, kind of like in your own finances, if you don't refinance a mortgage, what do you care what mortgage rates are? Uh, and uh, equally, it's only the debt that the government has to refinance. They have to pay these higher mortgage or higher interest costs on. So we're going to see a, a slow phase up in terms of the interest cost actually borne by the federal government. What it'll do is over time, of course, is will tend to increase taxation and reduce spending. And also since about half of the US federal debt is financed from overseas, over time, it will be a drag in the US economy overall. So it's not good. Uh, but again, I think all it does is it really slows the growth in living standards in the United States for the long run. It doesn't cause a crisis. And it does give us plenty of time if we were to reform our ways uh, of bringing that debt down in the long run. Okay, but if if rates continue to rise as the Fed aggressively tries to tame inflation, is there a point at which we either won't be able to service our debt or outsized debt payments begin to have a negative toll on the economy? Well, of course, it's it's not if rates if for some reason rates rose at explosive pace, then we would have a a problem of increasing debt service. But I think in, in most scenarios, whether the Federal Reserve is more aggressive or less aggressive, the increase in interest cost is going to be manageable. I mean, again, relative to reducing the deficit from 
15.4% of GDP to 3% of GDP if the total interest cost of financing the federal debt was to go up by 1% of GDP. Well, okay, then the deficit goes from 3% of GDP to 4% of GDP, but we can finance that. Um, so I don't think that there's going to be a big problem in terms of financing stuff. But what I do think is you've got this big drag on the economy overall. A lot of that aid that was in those the the uh, big deficits run under both the Trump administration and the Biden administration, essentially $6 trillion of deficits in two years. That A lot of that money went to lower and middle-income households who normally don't have an extra paycheck, uh, so to speak, and they got extra paychecks from the government that did push up their spending. That spending, we're now seeing a decline in spending on food. We're seeing a decline in spending on, on clothing, uh, on basics. And I think that's going to get worse as the year goes on. So I do think that there is a drag on the economy from the fact that the deficit's coming down, but there isn't that much of a drag on the economy from the fact that the interest costs of financing the deficit uh, has gone up. Thanks, David. Mira, I'll turn to you to dive into the political picture. It looks like less fiscal spending is on the horizon, but Democrats have been debating some form of Build Back Better for the last year. Is Build Back Better or any other iteration of it truly dead? It's May. We're in the thick of primary season already. The focus has really shifted to the midterm. So I think the real window to get Build Back Better done or any similar iteration of a new package has has essentially closed. Um, and Build Back Better essentially included spending on climate, social reforms that would have tried to pass through that budget reconciliation process. But we've seen for months now that through multiple attempts, we, we really haven't coalesced around a, a good compromise between a lot of the centrist Democrats. And, and we have to remember that Ultimately, each senator is going to try to serve the best interests of their constituents, not the National Democratic Party. And, and certainly Democrats from West Virginia versus Arizona versus New York have different policy goals. So that's been a challenge to really find common ground. I'd also say that what we were dealing with in the fall versus what we're dealing with now is a much stickier inflation picture. So with the highest inflation we've seen in over 40 years, it's really challenging to say, hey, we're going to spend an extra $550 billion, even if it's going to be paid for, even if it's going to be spread out over multiple years. It just comes off as maybe a little bit tone deaf or, or vulnerable to criticism if you're spending more money in an environment where inflation is already high, given the fact that there's been criticism that the fiscal packages that have already been passed were part of the reason that inflation has been stoked. So I think it's going to be a real challenge at this point. And if that's the case, does that also mean we're not likely to see tax increases anytime soon? Tax increases would have probably been part of Build Back Better to, to pay for it, at least in part. So I think that tax increases are probably off the table now, not only because they've kind of gone along with Build Back Better, but also because if we think about the fact that People are throwing around the R word, thinking about recession, thinking about headwinds to consumer demand and, and corporate earnings. I don't think that lawmakers necessarily want to uh, add to that by increasing taxes. Um, you know, ultimately, with massive earnings growth last year, that would have really been the, the window to do it when we think about corporate taxes. And even though a lot of the individual income tax proposals were on, you know, the, the highest income rungs of the population. I think that messaging was kind of lost last year where people thought higher taxes on everyone. So I'm not sure that that, even if it went through in the form that it was proposed at the end of last year, would land well from a messaging standpoint. 
All that being said, like, let's remember what David said about deficits and debt. You know, the outlook may be better, but over time, we're still going to have to pay for all of this spending. So that's going to mean less spending in the future, more tax increases, potentially both. So let's not forget what some of those proposals were last year between higher corporate taxes, higher individual income taxes, all of the, the number of different provisions, because they essentially down the line are, are coming to a theater near us. So I think that's why it's still really important to think about tax management in portfolios and different investment vehicles that can have tax advantages as we think about eventually entering a, a higher tax regime. And as you mentioned, politicians are now fo- shifting their focus from debating spending packages and tax increases to the midterm elections coming up in less than six months. How difficult do you think it will be for the Democrats to hold their raise within majorities in the Senate or the House? It's going to be a challenge, not only because the the majorities, as you say, are razor thin, but also history is not necessarily on their side. So if we think about the the current makeup of Congress, the Democrats have a five-seat majority in the House, and the Senate is a 50-50 split right now. Um, And if we think about what's on the table, 35 seats in the Senate are up for election. Uh, 21 of those are currently held by Republicans and 14 held by Democrats. And then, of course, all of the 435 seats in the House are up for election. So not only is this a thin majority, but if we think about what's happened in history, the president's party has lost House seats in 17 out of the last 19 midterm elections, if we go back to World War II, and has lost Senate seats in 13 out of those 19 midterms. And the average seat loss has been pretty steep when we compare the the relative advantages right now. So almost 27 seats in the House, again, five-seat majority, that's you know, a, a large hill to climb. Um, and then three to four seats in the Senate, and, and we have a 50-50 Senate. So that that in and of itself makes it a pretty ca- challenging backdrop. If we think about where the toss-ups are and, and where the close races are, uh, there's really five races that are, are really tight and, and considered toss-up category. Uh, three of those are held by Democrats in Arizona, Georgia, and Nevada. The toss-up seats on the Republican side are Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, but there could still be other tight races outside of those five if we think about Colorado and New Hampshire held by Democrats or Ohio, North Carolina, and Florida held by Republicans. So it's still really early on, especially considering we're still going through primaries, but there are certainly many seats that both sides are going to have to fiercely defend even with the slightest vulnerabilities. And then on the House side, uh, we've seen that, you know, the, the big change this year is that we had the 2020 census results that resulted in a, in a reapportionment process in which essentially, based on those population changes, the number of houses and, and districts or the, the number of seats kind of have, have to have been adjusted based on those new population estimates. And then from there, uh, there's been a, a degree of redistricting that's gone on. And right now, what we've seen is that, look, seven states lost seats through that reapportionment process, and many of them tend to be ones that typically lean Democratic. And six seats that gained are also, you know, skew Republicans. So from that standpoint, there's a little bit of a a disadvantage there for the Democrats. And then when we think about reapportionment, you know, it's not or redistricting, it's not completely done. I think there's there's two states that are, are still tying loose ends here, but that so far has also skewed towards kind of a net gain for Republicans on the margin. So all in all, steep hill for Democrats to, to climb this time around, and we could very well 
beheaded for divided government. Right. And so if we do have a divided government after the midterm elections, what do you think that means for the fiscal outlook going forward? In short, we're probably going to see a a high degree of political gridlock. Maybe there's some areas of compromise. I mean, infrastructure would have been one of them. But given the package that did pass last year on a bipartisan basis, uh, I think that that one's kind of kind of in the past as opposed to what we could see coming up. Maybe given the war in Ukraine, you could see it, you know, because of the impact to energy prices, some of the implication for defense, there could be some areas for collaboration when it comes to policy or spending, but probably only on the margins. I think ultimately we're going to have a lot of noise in a divided government because we think about things like government shutdowns, the debt ceiling coming back up, and, and really parties have weaponized these things for political purposes in, in recent years. So maybe let's talk about shutdowns first. So Congress first introduced the, the modern budget process in 1976, and since then there's been about 20 funding gaps. You know, Before 1980, the government didn't really shut down in the way we saw it in, in 2018, 2019. Um, it kind of continued its operations. Um, since since 1981, there's been some funding gaps, about 10 of them, but like relatively minimal impact. It's really been in the last 30 years where we've seen more meaningful, true shutdowns of, of more than a day in terms of operations. So there were sort of two that happened during the Clinton administration in 95 and 96, uh, another one over the Affordable Care Act in 2013, and then the longest that we saw in December 2018 through January 2019. That was 35-day shutdown uh, over different spending provisions. And, and so that's going to be a challenge. I think that you could continue to see that that's a tool now that that political parties have to, to to lord over each other. But the market impact has actually been more limited than you think. I mean, yes, it causes a lot of uncertainty. But what we also saw during the shutdown from 2018 to 2019 is that markets did very well. And the, the reason is because all of a sudden you saw kind of a, a meltdown over Christmas, a pivot from the Fed. And markets really focused on that shifting policy backdrop as opposed to the shutdown itself. So I think important message is these things cause a lot of noise. They might cause some short-term market volatility, but ultimately the prevailing backdrop is is the most important thing. Turning to the debt ceiling, that's essentially the, the legal limit on the total amount of federal debt the government can accrue. And this has morphed over time. You know, essentially back in the day, Congress would have to approve uh, every issuance of debt. And clearly when we ran into the, the first two world wars, that was a challenge given the, the greater amount of spending we were doing. So we, we came up with this concept of the debt ceiling. And since 1960, Congress has raised or suspended the debt limit 79 times. So this has sort of become a, a matter of procedure that when we run up against it, we adjust it. Um, right now, the debt ceiling is about $31.4 trillion. That was raised in the middle of last December. The, the challenge is it was raised without Republican support. So what that says to me is in the future, this could be something that is weaponized or, or used from a, a political perspective in the wrong ways. Uh, maybe the good news, though, is because we didn't see a passage of Build Back Better, that actually leaves us a bit of room until we are likely to hit that ceiling. So actually, it could be until 2024 that we have to have that conversation again, in which case, depending on the timing, we, we could have yet another different political configuration. So 
more to come on that. But uh, I think in short, things like government shutdowns and debt ceilings have become more increasingly political tools. So different tools being used in, in the wrong ways, I think. But what I will say is we mostly exist in a divided government. If we think about uh, all the different government configurations back since uh, World War II, 61% of the time we're in a divided government. So there's a lot of noise, but ultimately we've continued to see the economy over that time grow at about a 2.7% pace and market returns were nearly 8%. So I also wouldn't read too much into things falling apart because we have a divided government. And so going back to that point on shutdowns and debt ceiling sta- standoffs, David, what are the potential economic consequences from a potential government shutdown or debt default? Well, it's, it's a difference between uh, a uh, thunderstorm and a hurricane. If you have a government shutdown, it's obviously not good for the, for the economy overall. Um, it hurts confidence. It hurts business activity. And it also frankly, embarrasses the United States relative to the rest of the world. It's, it's not good. But usually what we've seen in the past is the economy sort of trudges through and it's settled relatively quickly and no long-term damage is done to the U.S. economy. We have never had a debt default. The full faith and credit of U.S. treasuries is the bedrock of global financial markets. Uh, there's, there's nothing more sacred in, in global financial markets than that. So if the U.S. federal government were to default on its debt, it would have massive consequences for in destabilizing financial markets around the globe. Uh, you know, it would be a, Le- a Lehman moment. Um, so, um, of course, it's terrible to, you know, as, as Mira said, they have weaponized these things. But particularly with regard to the debt ceiling, it's, it's ludicrous to do this. It's, 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 it's saying we're going to, you know, blow ourselves up. I really think we should abandon the debt ceiling altogether and just deal with spending and taxes as they, as they come up. But the good news, as, as Mira said, is uh, you know it doesn't look like we're going to hit a debt ceiling crisis anytime soon. Um, it's not good that you know we have sort of very populist politics on, on both sides with not a lot of thought going into these things because government shutdowns and debt ceiling standoffs really are childish. We need to think carefully about you know who we tax and how much and what we spend money on and how much. And uh, we should think about that in, in an adult way instead of shutting down the government or threatening to, to, to default on the debt. But uh, the economic consequences would be very severe from a debt default. But luckily, I think the risk of that is, is pretty small right now. And typically, as Mira mentioned, debt ceiling standoffs and government shutdowns end up not being that important for investors besides short-term noise. Well, right now, the forefront concern investors have is the risk of a recession. What, what happens if we get a recession before the 2024 presidential election? And how would a divided government react in providing fiscal stimulus this time around? Well, if we, you know, I think there, it is possible we'll have a recession. We hope that we'll have a soft landing. And I still think that is, is quite possible. I think would, I'd say it's probable. But if we had a recession, I think we do have a problem here because the partisan divide in Washington is so severe that even if both sides agree that there was a need to try to help the economy out, I suspect the pro- proposals on both sides would be so radically different that, that a divided government wouldn't actually be able to pass anything and, and everybody would get hot under the collar because the government wasn't doing anything, but the government simply wouldn't be able to come up with a compromise. I also think, though, an- another element of this is that if inflation is still occurring, it might be some time before people actually admit that this is actually a recession. And uh, so I think you could have a delay in, in, in getting to a point where anybody agrees something should be done. And then a further problem, severe problem, because 
Both sides just couldn't agree on how to try to stimulate the economy. I think that would make a recession linger. But I don't think that, I, you know, on the on the flip side, there's nothing about this economy which says that recession should be severe. I mean, remember, we've got pent-up demand for cars, pent-up demand for houses, massive pent-up demand for workers. All of these things act as a an inoculation. And it's, it's kind of like a, a, you know, the coronavirus vaccine. It may, it may not stop you from, from getting the disease, but it should make it milder. And I think all this pent-up demand means that a recession would be milder if it occurs. So I think that would slow things down. It would, it would erode inflation. Uh, you might have a, a small recession, just eroding inflation. And then after the 2024 presidential election, it would probably end up with I mean, that kind of scenario. You could easily end up with a, a clean sweep for the Republicans. And a clean sweep on either side, I think, means fiscal stimulus. If you have, you know, what we've seen in the past is if you've got one party government, that means plenty of subsidies to low income households. If the Democrats win, it means big tax cuts. If the Republicans win, it doesn't seem to mean much focus on the deficit um, either way. So I would expect a revival of fiscal stimulus if you end up with one party government after the 2024 election, but that would come well after any need that uh, came from a recession in, in 2023. So probably, as usual, we'd end up with the, with the uh, you know plenty of stimulus arriving at exactly the wrong time. But that's the nature of American politics. Well, no matter what side of the political aisle you're on, elections always cause uncertainty and markets don't like uncertainty. Mira, how do markets typically perform around midterm elections and how should investors think about putting money to work in this environment? Certainly, we see more market volatility around elections because of that uncertainty. But I think most important is to be disciplined when we face a lot of uncertainty and when we face volatility. Ultimately, investor time horizons span much longer than any given election cycle or even any given administration. So investors really want to stick to their investment plan. And I want to reiterate something that you had said, Stephanie, earlier, which is don't let how you feel about politics overrule how you think about investing. And what we've actually seen in, in recent years, we, we take a look at this survey from the Pew Research Center that looks at how Americans feel about the economy during different points over the last two decades. And what we tend to see, no surprise, is that Republicans feel better about the economy during Republican presidencies and Democrats feel better about the economy during Democratic presidencies. And yet, if we think about the Obama administration and the Trump administration, if I look at average annual returns on the S&P 500, they are almost identical. So two very different presidencies, two very different constituencies, but pretty much the same returns. And I think that reminds us that policy and politics doesn't dictate what happens in the markets and what an investor experience is. Not only were returns almost identical at about 16% during those two administrations, but well above the average over the last 30 years, which was about 10.6%. So if you let your political opinions overrule your investing discipline, you, you could very well miss out on some of those above average returns. The other point I'd make is, yes, any way you slice it, you do tend to see more volatility during whether it's midterm or presidential election years. You, you see more of that and lower returns. 
But I think that there's definitely limits to what averages can tell us because during these midterm election periods and during presidential election periods, we've had financial crises, tech bubbles, pandemics, geopolitical crises that do not care when an election is taking place. And and those have been big disruptors to returns and volatility. So I, I wouldn't say it's all due to the political environment. I'd also say that, you know, you mentioned these elections cause uncertainty getting the results always reduces it. It almost doesn't even matter what the result is. And, and I'll give you two examples of that. You know, if we think about when President Trump was elected in 2016, futures markets came crashing down in the pre-market. But the end of the day, when it was like, this is the result, markets were up. Same thing happened the week that uh, Joe Biden was elected in 2020. We saw uh, the market's up 7.3% that week, and we didn't even have a clear result by the end of the week. So once people get a good, clear direction of travel, it almost doesn't matter what it is. People say like, okay, I, I can move on from here. So I think that's an important part about uncertainty. Um, and then just to reiterate what I had mentioned before, you continue to see the economy grow. You continue to see markets push forward in periods of divided government, uh, in in clean sweeps in either direction. So we do have to keep uh, a clear head about what the economic fundamentals are as opposed to what's going on in Washington. Thanks, Mira. So investors should remember to stay the course and focus on fundamentals during the more volatile periods around elections. Well, thank you for joining me, Mira and David. This was a really interesting conversation on something that will be more top of mind and topical for investors in the coming months. And thank you all for listening. Please tune into our next episode, where I'll be back interviewing David Kelly again for an important conversation on the state of the labor market and what implications it may have for the inflation and the Fed going forward. And until then, I also invite you to read or listen to David Kelly's Notes on the Week Ahead podcast, where every Monday he shares commentary on the latest in the markets and economy to help you stay informed for the week ahead. For even more timely insights, you can also follow and subscribe to his content on LinkedIn. This content is intended for information only based on assumptions in current market conditions and are subject to change. No warranty of accuracy is given. This content does not contain sufficient information to support investment decisions. It is not to be construed as research, legal, regulatory, tax, accounting, or investment advice. Investments involve risks. Investors should seek professional advice or make an independent evaluation before investing. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate, including loss of capital. Past performance and yield are not indicative of current or future results. Forecasts and estimates may or may not come to pass. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide.